Hello and welcome to Building High Performance Cultures, a weekly series where we talk with executives from top organizations about how they built high performance cultures and how they're leveraging their cultures as competitive advantage. I'm Marty Parker, I'm the President and Chief Executive Officer of Waterstone Human Capital, and my guest today is none other than the President and CEO of Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, Evan Siddall. Evan, welcome to Building High Performance Cultures. Delighted to be here, Marty. Thanks. Delighted to have you. Now, if you don't know this, Evan and his executive team have truly transformed CMHC into a high-performing, innovative, and ambitious organization with the aim that, and I'll quote, by 2030, everyone in Canada will have a home that they can afford and that meets their needs. CMHC has led the design of Canada's first ever, amazing it's a first ever, national housing strategy, an ambitious $55 billion 10-year plan to reduce housing need in Canada. How is that for an ambitious purpose? <laughs> and Evan was inspired to public service after visiting Canadian battlefields in Vimy Ridge in Northern France. He served first at the Bank of Canada as special advisor to Mark Carney in 2010, taking lessons from the global financial crisis in 2008 and his career in finance. Evan spearheaded the bank's efforts in establishing financial infrastructure to guard against systemic risk, including bail-in loss absorption capital for large banks. That's quite a thing to do. Uh, and Evan worked at some of the largest investment banks in Canada and the United States before joining the bank. And he's also helped launch a private entrepreneurial venture. If you think he's all civil service, he's certainly not. And that is Side Launch Brewing Company, named 2016 Canadian Brewery of the Year. What's interesting on a personal note is that diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease in I think 2015, Evan, yep. he's an incredible advocate for healthy living. And inspired by the legendary cyclist Davis Finney's mantra to live well today, Evan's a member of Davis's foundation board and co-founded the Growling Beaver Brevet Cycling Fundraiser. And in five years, this is an amazing accomplishment. The event has raised 1.8 million for Brain Canada and people living with Parkinson's. And that is incredible in itself. So Evan, let's get into it. Let's start with the culture at CMHC. Now you're a two-time Canada's most admired Corporate Culture Award winner in 2012 and 15. And that, so we know that there's a very high performance culture there, but tell us in a, in, in a few words, how you would describe that culture today. I, yeah, I was challenged to do this in 10 words, as I recall, Marty. And one, <laughs> I'm say, more generous than that. I would say we are a results oriented, caring team that, um, that is bold and purpose driven. And that, the fact that we're purpose driven, we'll come back to, but results oriented is crucial. Yep. Um, for sure, that's true. And the caring, we lead in a different way. So I combine those two as important. So talk about leading in a different way. Love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're famous most recently for something called a results only work environment, which was a program we implemented, I want to say two years ago. And it's, people would look at it and say, that's a working home program. Well, it's not a working home program. It's a results. It's very much a, a program where you, you get really, really crunchy, as one of my colleagues once said, about results for every individual person. And then work is a place you go, not a thing, is a thing you do, not a place you go, and you do it from wherever you want. We did that before the pandemic. And our productivity has only screamed upward during the pandemic because we were ready for it. We, you know, we didn't see it coming, but that was a crucial part of it. So being results-oriented and then taking care of our people. 
we really believe as leaders, we've gone through a huge leadership um, retooling of people and training to lead in an empathetic way, kind of a coach, a coach mentality as opposed to a manager mentality. Cool. Now you came on board as CEO, I think in around 14. Yeah. Uh, you spearheaded at that time, the start of a significant transformation at the organization. I'd love you to talk us through kind of the process, both kind of where you started, what drove the change and what some of the key elements of that success have been. Yeah, uh, there are actually a couple of great case studies written by a Harvard Business School prof on this, if anybody wants extra reading, but we're doing vlogs because people don't want to do that. Right. So um, the way it started was in my first 90 days, I went around and asked people, what's wrong with this place? You know, what's good with this place and what's wrong with this place and what would you change? And I took notes. And that was employees, board members, customers, suppliers, you know, the, the whole range of people we dealt with, government for sure. Mm -hmm. and I repeated it back. And the diagnosis was right there. We were a bureaucratic company that didn't really have a clear strategy. We were divided between commercial and non-commercial businesses that we didn't really know how to rationalize. You know, we were in a way, if in the U.S. context, we were Fannie Freddie, um, Housing and Urban Development, which is a government department, and then a bunch of regulators thrown into one. Um, it was something, it was hard to get our hands around, but we did that. And we quickly decided that that CMHC existed in a way that manifested itself in a more, in a better explained strategy later, but one that was driven by needs, not wants. And so doing things like helping people endlessly buy homes to buy second homes, for example, made no sense. That wasn't a role for government. I don't need to use Marty Parker's tax money to help my son buy a cottage, right? Like that, but we were doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that meant we had to think about our business differently. And so we went through an extended period of time. And I remember presenting this idea to my board in March, it would have been March of 2014. They said, so um, you ever done this before? <laughs> it was kind of a funny question because I was like, I'd never been a CEO before. So uh, no, they said, why don't you get some help? So we actually got some outside help and it took us the better part of it would have been about April till December to do that first restructuring. And that was the first of three that have happened in the last seven years. Unbelievable. And, and so that was really, you know, you got at it early and, and fast, but as a leader, you know, how do you truly implement change like you did and still get things done? Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, the, we talked about flying the plane while you're redesigning it, not an easy thing to do. And the really tough part actually came not in that first spasm because new leaders get the benefit of the doubt. And I got that for sure. Uh, I also have, uh, I guess my leadership would be populated with a level of impatience that's like kind of off the charts. That, could, that can be good and bad, uh, very much good and bad. But in that particular case, I was impatient to get things done. I remember Jack Welch saying, you know, whatever you need to do, do it faster. And uh, so I was trying to do that, but the big, the big, the thing that we did right wasn't a, a rationalization or restructuring. It was when we got to the back of it and employee motivation faded, as it often does, even the people that it waned for people who were there a long time because we let a lot of people go. And it was a hard thing to go through and people redefine their jobs. The trick was we persevered. The trick was when, when that rope got, that elastic band got stretched, I sat down with the board and I said, you know, we're losing the room. I'm a coach, I'm, I'm worried about losing the room. Mm -hmm. The instructions were pull the elastic, don't let it break, but keep going. And that was absolutely the thing to do. What often happens is you lose your nerve in that circumstance and you lose all the benefits. Yeah. And so it's, it's easy to lose your nerve because there's pressure on you probably yeah. from all sides to do that. Yep, for sure. Right. You're, 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 I know it wasn't trying to swing for the fence, but 
it's a lot of singles and doubles in succession. It was. It was a lot of singles and doubles in succession, and and you know I needed to have the right people around me too, which we which took some time. Um, but uh, we had a really great team. We have an even stronger team now. But we'll get to now later. Great. Well, what does high performance look like at at CMHC, and and how do you make that connection, Evan, between culture and performance with your broader team? Yeah. So high performance is measured in results ultimately, and our and we've set for ourselves a really ambitious goal. That by 2030, everyone in Canada will have a home they can afford and that meets their needs. That's our strategic goal. That's our, uh, what, what uh, Collins, Jim Collins would call our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal. And it is something that motivates people. It's actually a core, core ingredient for change. And, and so having a purpose is actually quite essential. And Re Rebecca Henderson's got this book right now called Reimagine Capitalism. And she said the only, only the companies that have a reason to change actually can pull it off. You can't do it if you're the, you know, the yellow bank and that's your raison d'etre. It's got to be something, a, a, a higher calling. That's ingredient number one. And I think often paid lip service to, but really, really crucial. What shared social value are you creating in addition to profitability? Secondly, trust. And that is a really, that's the harder work, actually. Uh, a clear purpose is, is hard enough work, but establishing trust when you're firing people right it's really quite tough you've got you've got to be true to your word um you got to walk the talk all that stuff and then in the middle of this or in you know not maybe middle's the wrong term this little pandemic thing yeah rears its head yeah wow the pandemic thing actually has been a proof point for us so all the hard heart of the third restructuring which was around this new strategy i just gave to you, marty was done in April of 2019. So the last year has been spent digesting and having people figure out where the maps are and all that stuff. Uh, we also put this row program in, results only work environment. And, um, and I declared at the beginning of the year that I'd be leaving sometime in 2020 and that I would stay if there were a crisis. Well, you know, three months <laughs> later, here we are. And I have to say, uh, much as this crisis has been tragic and horrible, I would have hated to have been watching it from the sidelines. And I think we all feel that way. I know how passionate you are about developing the next generation of leaders. Yeah. Where does that come from? Why is that so important for you? Well, I guess it's two things. One is trust. Um, the only, you know, the, the manager who's most important to an employee is her direct manager. It's not me, the CEO. You know, there are only eight people who report to me. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not sure I'm important to them all the time because they're pretty self-starting people. They don't need me. Um, but we spent a lot of time investing in leadership. We have a leadership contract that we researched. We published it online, the kind of behaviors we expect of leaders. And as I said earlier, it's basically modeled around a coaching idea. Okay. Um, so that's important. The other thing is, I think leaders are stewards. Leaders, you know, CEOs, the problem with CEOs, as somebody once called me, is they go supernova and they think they're the best kind of leaders they could ever have. The best CEOs know that one of the things they need to do is leave. Um, I think it was Sheryl Sandberg who said the test of leadership is how other people behave in your presence and whether it lasts in your absence. So succession planning is, an, is, is a crucial, crucial, crucial part of leadership. And we've been working on it since the day I started. And that's not just my successors, but everybody has to have a successor, an emergency successor, a depth chart. And so investing in leadership is part of the culture. Awesome. What are you seeing when it comes to leadership, Evan, and what the next generation of leadership is bringing to the table? I've actually had reverse mentors. Um, 
which is, I can't remember who gave me that idea. It was probably this guy at Harvard, but it tends to be people, you know, in their thirties who look at the world differently. Um, there's a lot of view that there's an entitlement uh, with Gen Y folks. I don't think that's fair. You know, I felt pretty entitled when I was in my thirties and felt pretty judged by people in their fifties. Um, you probably did the same. So I, you know, I just think younger people bring a fresh approach. Um, I think about social media of all things differently. It's an incredible communication vehicle for, and, and I've used it as people know, um, for getting messages out and for, for promoting what we're trying to do. That's just one example. Um, the other thing is you find people who are truth tellers in an organization and as a CEO, everything you get is filtered. You want to actually be talking to people who, um, who are at the coal face, right? Yeah. hundred percent true and, and, and a great term, a truth teller. Um, so with that in mind, I, I love the idea of reverse mentors, but mm -hmm. um, what do you think we can do to develop tomorrow's leaders better? The best thing we can do is yeah. role model good leadership for sure. The, and, and be true to our word. Um, so many of us make promises that we break or we, uh, or we say things we don't mean. And I got to tell you, you will be called out on it, whether you're actually called out on it or people will do it behind your back, which is much worse. Mm -hmm. Being the kind of person you say you want to be, and none of us can be perfect, but being the kind of person you say you want to be and modeling leadership is way more important than anything you say, anything at all. Mm, very interesting. Now we talked about this a little bit, but 2020 has been a pretty interesting year to say the least, a tough year, but one that's really putting the spotlight on, I would say, important issues, including mental health, yeah. diversity, yeah. inclusiveness. Um, but as a CEO, what do you see as your role when it comes to championing these discussions or these issues in the workplace? I, a tone at the top matters a ton. And I, I don't know if you know this, but we've done all those things. We made a statement in, uh, in the middle of the, I guess it was late June. We made eight commitments with respect to anti-racism in our organization including substantial targets around representation. Now that's, you'd say that's what Crown Corporation should do because we should represent the Canadian population. It's actually even more strategic than that. If we're gonna house everybody in Canada by 2030, we have to help the vulnerable. And that means we have to attend to people who are black and are indigenous or people of color or whatever um, that are disadvantaged, that are exposed to more evictions, that have a harder time getting rental housing or, or owned housing or loans. It's part of our system that we discriminate against these people. So it's strategic for us to do that. That's one. Mental health is part of caring for our people. So we actually give all of our employees $2,000 a year for therapy counseling so that they can use it. We didn't have to do that. We, we've had a, an expansive mental health strategy at our company for a long time. And that's probably like any of us, Marty. That comes from personal experience. My daughter was, uh, had very serious eating disorder, bipolar disorder runs in my family. And I, I just know that if we talk about these things, we'll save lives. Yeah, and I agree with you. I deal with, we have some mental health issues with family members of mine as well. And uh, the, the other thing is the more transparent you are with it, it's incredible what comes back to you. Totally true. My daughter and I wrote a blog together about her experience for my employees. And it was the best feedback I'd ever had. Isn't that neat? Yeah, but again, model, it's role modeling, right? 100%, and I'll tell you, I've, I've learned so much more because I, 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 you know, we worked through this with one of my, one of my uh, children as well, and I feel like, I mean, I'm a student. I, yeah, right, we learn. 
I remember taking a walk on a beach with my daughter and she was in recovery. And she said, when did you see a therapist last? And I said, oh, you know, five, six years, whatever it was. She said, when was the last time you saw a doctor? I said, a month or two. She said, is your mind not more important than your body? Wow. Wow. And he dropped. What a cool thing to say. And what a great yeah. point, right? And hopefully yeah. we can all get to the point where, uh, where we, we think that way. And it, that's, it, the stigma's gone. You bet. You know? What, um, what trends do you foresee in terms of building high-performance cultures when you look at it? Well, I guess I'll say this, Marty, that leaders have to be way more attentive to culture than we used to. We think if we set a good strategy, we used to think if we just published a good strategy, it'd all happen. And we'd say things from the corner, we'd issue our edicts from the corner office. You know, uh, that doesn't work. People are brighter. You know, what's happened in Western world is the quality of our work has increased. The quality of the intellect involved in our work has increased. And therefore, the quality of skepticism has increased. Mm -hmm. and, so, um, and so attending to culture is, is actually a full-time job. And it's a really, really hard thing. It's the one thing I worry about because in seven years, I've had an impact on the culture. The leadership of the organization's had an impact on the culture. But this is the this is a company that the, the culture is the possession of two thousand people, and um, and the change we actually have to go through, while we've changed all these systems and processes, will take a generation probably to kick in. Yeah, no, I bet it is. And in terms of the, the future of aligning your people and attracting new people uh, to, to CMHC, but let's broaden that even to the, to the broader civil service, to yeah. the Crown Corps, because this, this is something I seriously considered uh, at a stage in my career, and I, I never went down that path. But, you know, what do you see is critical to that kind of alignment, to that attraction and development uh, as, you, as you look forward? So the good part of public service is that we have this purpose thing nailed. You know, it's clear the way you do every day in your job has value and you're helping somebody somehow. That's, that's what public, it's service, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I did not appreciate, it was Mark Carney who first exposed me to the idea. He'd come to Ottawa. And I didn't appreciate how, how much I'd get out of it, how, how much satisfaction and job satisfaction I myself get out of it. You know, I was an investment banker. That's like the first or second derivative of socially useful. It's, it's, <laughs> it's helpful, but you know, every single day I know I'm doing something valuable and I will miss this job a lot. We just don't pay well. And, um, and I think what's happened though is the pendulum has shifted away from uh, a very, uh, very, a more mercenary kind of existence to something where people want content in their jobs. Uh, I think that's a function of being better off. Uh, and that helps, but um, the truth is people are gonna have to make sacrifices, unfortunately, to do public service. Last question, and you know, you talked about reverse mentoring. This is a, a particularly interesting question, but if you were giving one piece of advice, you know, to a young person starting on their high performance culture journey as a leader, uh, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they're a prof you know, in the professional world, they're a, a civil service, it does not matter, family business. What would you share with them? I would say find the things that you love to do and do that. And it's hard work. Um, and I remember I broke my leg when I was 18 skiing and it, it stuck with me that my dad actually pointed out, he said, 
who, who made who had the greatest impact on you? It was some nurse. I don't even remember what her name was. And he said, do you know how smart she is? I'm like, nope. She a good nurse? Uh, uh, seemed like a good nurse. You know what her grades were? Don't I have any idea. He said, the difference was she gave it. She gave a crap. Like, you know, that she cared. And that's what made her excellent at her job. And I see it around me. If people care about what they do, if they love what they do, then everything kind of flows from there. And so that brings me back to this idea of purpose, that you've got to make people care about something as a leader. And it's not, you know, people need a paycheck, but that's a threshold motivator. You just want to have enough money that you think you're fairly paid, truly. Extraordinary special effort comes from believing in what you're doing, having some control over your ability to do that, and, and, and an ability to be good at it. Those are the three ingredients. Well, on that note, I got to tell you, one of the things that's great about you from the first time I met you, and although we crossed paths briefly on the football field, College. Yeah, yeah. Um, is your authenticity and just how, um, how truly real and open you are. And I think that sets the stage for anything being possible. And you talked about having clear purpose, building trust, driving engagement, and building leadership. Those really are the four legs of, of any chair upon which future great development, organizational, cultural development will stand. And uh, I think whatever you choose to do in the future, this very authentic, inspirational, um, and, and, and frankly, humble approach to everything you do will, will make a big difference. It's got to be something that I think is, uh, is going to require some change and transformation, because I think that's what you've now done. Yeah. And, uh, and to set out that kind of a purpose, which is what I would say will, would have one of the greatest social impacts on what, what I think is the greatest nation in the world will be something that you can look back on. That'd be cool. It'd be really cool with 2,000 people. Un unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. So on that note, I want to thank our guest today, Evan Sadal of CMHC of Canada Mortgage and Housing. Uh, and, and I want to ask all of you to join us next week for another episode of Building High Performance Cultures. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more, go to waterstonehc.com and uh, wishing you all the best. And thank, uh, on behalf of really all Canadians, I'm so glad that you've been in this chair just a little bit longer than you planned.